Thank you, Elder Mark. And if you would open your Bible to the book of Job, it is great to be um, back able to open the Word of God with you again this morning. And we're going to be starting this morning a series on uh, the book of Job. And we're going to be just starting right up in Job chapter 1. Job, as you may know, is a lengthy book, 40-some chapters. Um, you might be wondering, how long is this actually going to go? I, I'm not sure, but I doubt it goes 42 chapters, uh, 42 sermons. Uh, Christopher Ashe believes that it's long on purpose that, um, to teach us that suffering is not something that you quickly deal with and move past, but uh, the lessons are learned slowly. Um, I believe that's true. However, I don't think it's my job to cause you to suffer either, so I... Uh, we'll be trying to con, uh, bring some concision a bit uh, as we go through the series, but I don't know exactly, I don't, I don't have a certain number of sermons planned. Um, I'm looking forward to it, though, because it is a profound book. So let's uh, begin Job chapter 1, and we're going to read the first uh, five verses. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father in heaven, now as we come to this story that you've given to us of a man, your servant, um, a child of God, whom you caused to suffer greatly, deeply, Lord, I thank you that you have things to teach us and to show us about who you are and what it means to belong to you. And... Um, Lord, I pray that we would seek Jesus as we go through these pages, and that we would be strengthened and encouraged in our faith, that we would understand uh, what it means to belong to Jesus Christ in a deeper way, and be more devoted to following him, even into the paths of suffering or sorrow that you bring. And so, Lord, we now, uh, relying on your Holy Spirit, open this word together in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the first questions that um, people ask when I say I'm going to do a series on the book of Job is uh, why. And uh, in fact, I had one uh, brother, uh, a fellow pastor, uh, when I told him, um, just shook his head and said, J just don't. Um, there, there was a pastor, I, 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 and this, I, I know this is true, I don't know all the, the exact details, but I believe he spent his entire ministry in the book of Job, 30-some um, years at the same church. Uh, in the book of Job, and, uh, and, and killed his church in the process, so we, we don't, as I said, intend to do that. However, it is a, a profound book, 
um, but it is not an easy book. It is, um, it's long. Uh, it is repetitive. If you've ever, if you've ever studied the book of Job, uh, you realize that the speeches of Job's three friends uh, become pretty um, repetitious. They don't have a lot new to say, and they, they say it over and over. Uh, there are three rounds of speeches where his three friends each get a turn, and, uh, and then Job's responses are also very similar. Um, but I think it is, um, it is a book, I don't know of anyone, I don't, think I've, I don't think I've met anyone who says this is my favorite book in the Bible, although I do know that there are such people, and usually there are people who've suffered greatly. Uh, for most of us, it, uh, it can, it's a topic, or it contains a topic that we would just as soon um, avoid. It, it presents us with a man, a godly man, who is uh, devastated, uh, and God allows it. Uh, that uh, Job experiences the thing that he most feared. Uh, we live, don't we, all of us, with secret fears, uh, we live with things that, uh, it's sort of in the shadow of things that we dread, things that we uh, desperately hope never happen to us. And in fact, oftentimes when we hear of some tragedy that has happened to someone else, one of the first thoughts is uh, we, we are concerned for them, we pray for them, we grieve with them, and we hope that never happens to us. Remember... Um, I remember very little about the movie, uh, The Patriot. I, I think it's almost 20 years old maybe now. But I'll never forget uh, being sort of startled by the opening um, scripture that is read. Mel Gibson speaks this uh, right at the beginning of the movie from Job 3.25. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. Well, what is that thing in your life? What is uh, the thing that you fear, the thing that you dread? If you're a parent, it probably has something to do with your children. Uh, and you've replayed uh, things that might happen to them. Uh, maybe if you are uh, going through an illness or you are part of a family that has a pattern of a certain illness, uh, you hope that doesn't happen to you in every... every um, thing that maybe ache you feel or a certain thing that's not quite right, you're, you're afraid it's going to be that. Uh, maybe you just are afraid of growing old. I've had people uh, say to me, just weeping and trembling um, after they'd maybe watched a parent grow old with dementia or something like that and, and, and just saying, I just beg God that that doesn't happen to me. Well, what is it for you? Because it's, it's something and then what if the thing that you most deeply feared actually did happen to you? And not only happened to you, but happened to you in um, multiplied ways that you never would have imagined were possible. Because that's what happens to Job. Whatever he had feared would happen in his life, uh, he could not possibly have imagined what actually did happen to him. Well, what if that happened then to you? What would that do to your faith? Because I think we secretly maybe believe that our faith protects us from things like this. We, we hope at least that if we, if we seek to honor the Lord, if we believe in the Lord, if we pray, that we will be protected from great devastation. 
Well, Job, we're going to find, um, did all those things, and he did those things in a superlative way, and yet he was not protected from that devastation. And so the book of Job forces us to face the reality that we live in a world where great devastating tragedies do happen, and those tragedies often seem pointless and random. I um, read a while back the, a book, A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer, uh, who lost his wife and his mother and a daughter in one moment when a drunk driver crossed over and smashed into their car head on. And he was left with his remaining children to ponder why. If they would have left where they had, uh, the place that they'd left from, if they'd have left a minute later, uh, when they came to that bend in the road, the drunk driver would have already been passed. Why would God time it perfectly so that at the very moment he crossed the bend in the road, crossed the line, their van was there? What do we do with a God who allows horrifying pain and evil into the lives of his children? Job, you see, refuses to allow us uh, easy answers to that. Uh, Christopher Ash, in his commentary, says this, Job is not about suffering in general. It's certainly not about the suffering that is common to man. Rather, it is about how God treats his friends. Uh, when I first read that, I was glad that I was uh, sitting down uh, because I, uh, it just struck me with, with sort of the force of blunt trauma. I don't want to believe that's true. I don't want to believe that the book of Job is about how God treats his friends. And yet, if you, if you know your New Testament, you'll remember maybe Peter saying, uh, do not be surprised when the fiery trial happens to you, the really devastatingly painful and destructive thing. When that happens to you, don't be surprised because to this you were called. To this you were called. So suffering is, is not accidental, it's, it's, um, it's something that God has called us to. But in all of that, it is a book that is profoundly helpful for several reasons, and it's, and it's helpful in unexpected ways maybe. It, it is, it's a helpful book because it exposes our false assumptions about how life works and, and what believing in God means and what He's really like. Uh, we're going to see in the book of Job, uh, his three friends try to comfort him. And they try sincerely. And they, and they take the best wisdom that they know. And they'll refer to it often. Job, everyone knows this is true. This is what our fathers have told us. This is what human experience reveals over and over again to be true. And, and what is, what, the wisdom that they bring to Job to try to encourage him uh, and to help him is that uh, the world runs on the basis of retributive justice. That that's how the world operates. That's, that's, that's the, the fundamental character of our moral universe is retributive justice. That means that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Which is, of course, the religion uh, of all the world. So it, that's a natural man's religion. And so they, they uh, try to keep their gods happy to try to stay on the good side of their god because if not, bad things will happen to them. 
Well, Job's uh, friends are going to be shown to be just, just wrong. Uh, not that there is not retributive justice in the world, but that is not the deepest nature of the moral universe. Um, it, it operates on a different principle. And in, the, in, in revealing then to us the nature of the moral universe in which we live, we, we really do come face to face with the God who actually is, and we find that he is both um, different than we had imagined him. We're really going to discover as we go through the book of Job that God is, uh, is not quite like what we had assumed. People often experience this when they go through great trauma. What exactly is God like if he allows these terrible and terrifying things to happen to me or to happen to people close to me? What does it mean to have a father in heaven when you have 10 dead children? What does it mean to have a father in heaven who loves you and cares for you when your, your marriage explodes? Or when the diagnosis comes back that it's terminal? And, and, and worse, it's not, maybe, uh, it's not your illness, it's, it's your child's. What do, we, what do we need to know then about God? And the book of Job is going to help us with that uh, in, in ways that are surprising. The, um, tonight, this morning, I'm sorry, this morning I just want to get started with the first five verses as it introduces to us uh, this uh, the man, a real man, not a, not a mythical creature. This isn't an Aesop fable and it has a nice uh, sort of little moral at the end of the story. Uh, this, is, this is something that happens to a man named Job, a real man, just like you and me. Uh, but we need to put him in his correct context. Um, so we're told beginning uh, where he lives, when he lives. Well, we're not told exactly when he lives. Uh, in fact, um, uh, there's a lot of discussion about that. Most scholars believe that he lives somewhere around the time of Abraham. Uh, the way that, he, that his wealth is counted, that's typical for the patriarchal age and period. So, so he probably is, is, is uh, uh, way back there, 2,000 years somewhere before Christ. We're told where he lives. He lives in the land of Uz. Uh, the land of Uz is a real land. It's, uh, it's east of Israel over the Jordan in what uh, would be called Edom, what today is Jordan. And uh, what's important about where he lives is, is that it's not the land of Canaan. It's not the land of Israel. Um, Job is um, not connected, as far as we know, in any way with Abram. He shows up uh, sort of unannounced and with no lineage. If you remember the, uh, the figure Melchizedek, Melchizedek was a priest that uh, appears to Abram, and Abram pays tithes to him, we have no idea where Melchizedek comes from. We don't know how does he know about God. Uh, there's no lineage to, to Melchizedek. And the book of Hebrews will say that just shows Melchizedek as a type of Christ in a unique way. He's not from the Aaronic priesthood. He stands apart from that, superior to that. Well, I think it, just as Melchizedek has this uh, unique um, character about him, no lineage, Job in the same way. There, there's no lineage. He's just, he's a man who loves the Lord God, a man who belongs to God, a great man, a godly man, but no lineage. And, and we're going to see as we go through Job that he also, in his own way, points us to Christ. 
The text is very clear to tell us about his greatness, his moral and material greatness. First, his moral greatness. He's blameless. Doesn't mean he's perfect. It just means that as best he could, as best he knew, he lived in obedient faithfulness before the Lord. That means that he acknowledged his sins and would confess them and repent of them. Uh, He was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. He, he simply walked with God as men can and do. There are um, Zechariah, um, the, the father of, of uh, John the Baptist. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth are both, both referred to as blameless before the Lord. If, if you're living as a Christian as best you know, um, as you, if you're fighting against the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, you're seeking to honor the Lord in what you do and the details of your life, uh, you're living a blameless life before God. Not perfect, um, but, but in, in, as, a, as a member of the covenant, as, a, as someone who belongs to God, as, as you earnestly seek him, well, that, that's called in the Bible blameless living. Well, Job is blameless. He's upright, we're told. That's in his dealings with other people. He is very careful. In fact, if you have your Bible, just quickly go to chapter 29. Job is very careful to live with other people, of course, our, uh, in a way that honors the Lord. The reality of our faith in God and our love for God is revealed in how we treat other people. And in Job chapter 29, in one of his responses, verses 12 through 16, well, let's just start at 11. He's talking about just sort of the reputation that he, had, that he had, and it was rightfully earned. He says, when the ear heard it, it called me blessed. When the eye saw it, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. Job was just a man who was pursuing righteousness and justice and mercy everywhere he went. And and that is evident throughout uh, the book. Job's friends continually try to charge him with uh, doing wrong. Because in their minds, uh, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, bad things are happening to Job, Job, you're bad, just confess it. You'll notice those, we go through the book, they never produce evidence. They don't, they don't call, uh, you know, Jacob so-and-so to, to come and, and, and Jacob's going to remind you, Job, of the time when you did such and such. Never happens. Why not? Because Job was an upright man. He treated people the way uh, God would have us treat people in every way. And and he does this, we're told, because he feared God and turned away from evil. He has a deep, deep reverence for God. We'll see that. He has a wonderful trust in the Lord God. His his desire is to honor and glorify God. And that because he he has such a devotion to God, this this is godliness, Because he has such a devotion to God, he shuns evil. He turns away from evil. Remember, Job was the one who says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a a virgin uh, lustfully. Why does he do that? Because God hates lust and adultery in that sense. 
And Job, because he loves God and is devoted to God, made a covenant with his eyes. Now, we're told all these things about Job, and, um, and God himself confirms it. If you have your Bible there, you can look at verse 8, where the sat- Satan uh, appears before the Lord, and God says in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God confirms the greatness of Job's morality. And it's a, in, it's a critical part of the book. The, uh, the, the, a key part of the drama and the crisis of the book will be how can such a great and godly man suffer such awful things at the hands of God? Why is Job suffering? Innocent Job. Righteous Job. Why is he suffering? And then, consequently, what kind of moral universe do we live in if a righteous and innocent man like Job is allowed to suffer these devastating things at the hands of a righteous God? Well, we're not only told about his moral greatness, but his material greatness. Verse 2 and 3, um, the amount is measured as it would be in those days by possessions in uh, agricultural terms, sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys. Um, he's, he's, a, he's the wealthiest man in the region. Um, the, and, and that's an important part that we're told he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Uh, and so there's a unique greatness to Job. Moral greatness, material greatness, but there's a uniqueness that we need to recognize. God uh, says that himself to, to uh, Satan, that there is, there's none like him in, in all the earth. There's, there's, uh, there's a unique character to Job that we need to uh, just pay attention to. He's not every man. He doesn't stand as a representative of, uh, of mankind in that sense. He, he stands alone in his piety, and in his godliness, in his blessedness. And and that unique characteristic of Job is going to again point us to another unique, unrivaled, unparalleled, great, innocent man who suffers, Jesus Christ. And one of the the things that we'll find as as we go through the book of Job, as Job defines the, the experience of his suffering. As he, as he gives words to the, the experience of his sorrow, we're going we're gonna to find uh, an uh, uh, insight into the nature of Christ's own suffering and what it was like for the, the most beautiful, innocent, righteous man. None like him. What it was like for him, being innocent, to suffer under the hand of God. And so uh, here we have this man. He's a great man. Finally, we see his faith and his fear. Verses 4 and 5, we're told about his practice. Uh, His sons would have uh, a feast on their day, probably their birthday. They would invite their sisters to join them. And and so Job's sons and daughters would be celebrating on these feast days. And and when the days had had run their course, Job, we're told, would send and consecrate them. So he'd have them come to to where he was, and he would consecrate them by offering a, a burnt offering, a sacrifice to God. 
according to the number of them all. So each child received its own sacrifice. That would be quite a solemn event as animals are brought and, the, and, the, and the, his, his sons and daughters are gathered there and, and, and he'd say to his oldest, this one is for you. And then he slits the throat and the blood pours out. This is for, for um, a sacrifice so that, so that uh, whatever sin you may have caused, notice Job is not charging his children with actual sinning, but he, he, set, he makes these sacrifices in the recognition that God is holy, that holiness matters, that judgment is real, and that sin is ever-present. And, and Job's concern, you see, is that his children may have sinned secretly in their hearts. And so this is a pious, godly father. And he knows his children are, are celebrating, and, and that's fine to celebrate, but celebrations can be causes for temptation. And notice he doesn't, he doesn't fear the things that, that West Michigan parents tend to fear. Uh, I, I hope my kid doesn't do, right, we could list the three or four things that we hope our children don't do. All external acts of impiety. But Job... Job fears that maybe secretly in their heart, in a moment of weakness, they cursed God. Now, to, to curse God here, I, I don't think is the best translation. The idea is here to renounce God. And, and again, what that means is that uh, in, in a moment of, of a celebration and, and, and temptation, maybe secretly in their heart, they wished they could enjoy the sin. That, that in their heart, they, they wish that God were not God and that obedience to him was, was not required. And that in that moment, you see then, they renounce God because they really, in their heart, wish they could sin. Now, most of us, if, if, if someone came to you and said, I, I need to report something that your child did, and you're like, oh, no. I need to tell you that your child secretly wished they could sin. What would your reaction be? You'd say, and? Or, that, is that it? That's great. I thought you were going to say something like really bad happened. For Job, you see, you get a sense of how pious, how godly this man is? For Job, that's devastating. For your, for your children to secretly in their heart wish they could sin, wish that God were not God, that's, that's his fear, you see, because that is the root of sin. That's the beginning of it all. No one ends up in the, in the external act of sin without beginning right here. Just secretly wishing I could live like the world, wishing I could enjoy that sin, wish I, wishing I could indulge that pleasure, that, that temptation. That's where it begins. And so here's Job's faith and Job's fear. His faith is magnificent. What a beautiful, beautiful, righteous, godly man. 
who cares so deeply for God and so deeply for his children. He, he loves the Lord and he wants his children to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their strength. That matters supremely to the man Job. But there's a fear, a lurking fear that sin is always there. Evil is present and judgment is a reality. And, 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 and then... In spite of all of Job's prayers and all of Job's sacrifices and all of Job's efforts, then the thing that he feared happened. And happened in a more thoroughly devastating way than he ever would have dreamed it could happen. And not because he was negligent, not because he was guilty, he was not guilty. He was innocent. But God called Job to suffer. And here we have um, the deep mystery of the book. Christopher Ash says it's the deep mystery of the universe. An insight that we'll, we'll unpack as we go along, that, that the world does not run fundamentally by um, retributive justice, by, uh, by retributive suffering, but by redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering. There is, there is justice and there's retribution, but, but the, sec- the deep secret, the deep mystery of the universe, of the moral universe, is that there is a, there's a, a suffering that actually redeems. There's a sorrow that can heal. There's a, there's a hurt that brings hope. That all suffering is not retributive. That God often calls his righteous ones to suffer, not because of their sin but for his purposes. And, 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 and it points, you see, again then to one that is yet to come. You see, in some of the comfort that comes from this book, as, as our sort of um, natural assumptions of the way things work, how many of you, when you've suffered something, whether it be big or small, that, that it, an initial thought or maybe a pervading, lasting, devastating thought is that God is punishing you. And you can maybe even point to the reason why, that you did such and such, and you remember doing it, and surely this is punishment for that. Or you failed to do something, and you made that mistake, or you committed that sin, and it was your fault. And there's no denying it was your fault. You, you did the thing. And now it, it, is, it, seems, it just seems patently clear to you that the reason you are suffering is retributive. That your suffering is directly linked God's justice being applied because of what you've done. Well, the book of Job stands and says it's not true. Job is not suffering for what he did. And Jesus Christ stands, you see, then for you and and, and I to show us that because he bore the retribution for your sin, your suffering is not retributive. In that sense, it's not your fault. This is not God writing the scales of divine justice in the moral universe. That is not what your suffering is about. I remember uh, talking to someone one time and, and this person explaining to me what, what had happened and what was happening and how hard it was. And I remember telling him, it's not your fault. Not, not, not that he was not with, with sin. Of course he was with sin. 
But we, we just can't draw that line. And I had to tell him over and over, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And the man started to weep. Some of you need to let go of that burden. You're convinced it actually is your fault. That, that the things that have happened to you, the things that are happening to you, is because God is in some way extracting some price. It's not true. Not if you're a child of God. It's not true. You have to believe the scriptures. It's not true. God is up to something else. Something bigger and grander and more glorious. He's up to showing the truth about himself to you. He's up to doing something in your life that, that he, he, he probably isn't going to tell you the details. He doesn't tell Job. But he tells you enough to give you hope. He, he tells you enough to give you reasons for joy even in the midst of sorrow. As God reveals himself in this book, not just as a mighty creator as he does to Job, but he reveals himself in Christ as a loving redeemer, a loving God, the great innocent one who suffered in our place bearing the justice, the wrath that we deserved. And that's what we need to know ultimately as we go through this book and as we go through our trials. What we ultimately need to know not is, is not simply that God is great, that God is mighty, that God is glorious. What we ultimately need to know is that God is loving, that he really does care. What is God's disposition towards us when our fears come true, when, when the sorrows come? What is his disposition? Is he a stern disciplining, judging, angry father? He's not. If it's discipline, it's discipline in love. In fact, it's the evidence of love. He's a loving heavenly father. We need to believe that and we can believe that because he's given us his own son who experienced depths of sorrow and devastation Job would never know. And he did it for our sake so that we can believe the character of our God, the righteousness of our God, the loving kindness of our God, even in our sorrows. Let's believe it's true. Amen. Our Father in heaven, you know your people. You know, Lord, in this room this morning, some of us have suffered devastating losses. Children, spouses, parents, friends. We've lost, Lord, our health. We've lost maybe our reputation. We've lost maybe our, our career dreams. We've Lord, some of us are in deep secret fear of what will happen next what will happen to our children what will happen when we are old and dependent we experience deeply our weakness we are frightened of what might come and Lord you know and I pray, Lord, that as you lead us through this book, we would discover not only a God who is mighty, but a God who is good. 
And that as we learn to read the pages of our life according to redemptive purposes, that we would be able to trust you in a deeper way. And that, Lord, in that be more faithful and, and we would worship you and we would experience peace even in the midst of the storm because we're absolutely confident that you love us. Lord, we have so much to learn. And I pray, Lord, that you would then teach us by your Holy Spirit in a way where you get the glory and we receive the blessing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond. A singing together, O love, that will not let me go. That's the truth of the gospel for us this morning. There's a love that will never let us go. Let's stand together and sing. See the benediction. Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope.
May God direct your hearts to the love of Jesus Christ and the steadfastness of God. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.